So a lot of people, when they're looking at these IRRs, one of the things that the IRR, by just laying out the, the, the numbers this way, you're able to see how much of the cash that you're getting is going to come from operating distributions and how much of it is coming from the sale. If most of the money is coming from the sale, then this deal is heavily on appreciation. It's an appreciation play. Whereas if you notice that when you sum all of the cash that you're supposed to get throughout the period, and if it, it's very similar to what you're going to get at the sale, then it's a split. And then lastly, if the, the amount that you're getting over the period is um, greater than what you're anticipated to get at sale, then this is really a cash flow deal. Welcome to the InvestNest Real Estate Investing Show, a community for real estate investors to learn, network, and grow. Be sure to join the InvestNest.com and start learning and earning today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the InvestNest Real Estate Investing Show. As always, I'm your host, Travis Murphy, and we've got another great invest guest joining us this week. Uh, this week's podcast is somewhat of a follow-up of our most recent episode where we talked about real estate syndications. Uh, we're going to have another expert, Lisa Hilton, joining us to talk about and break down syndications even further. So if you enjoyed our more recent podcast about it, stick around because a ton of great information comes out of this interview. But before we begin, I want to remind everyone listening to please hit the subscribe button. And if you're enjoying the podcast so far, leaving a review and rating really helps us out. It only takes about 10 seconds. Just You can scroll down if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a five-star rating and write us a quick review. You can also follow along on all of our social media where we put out a ton of content. At, and we can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And our handle is at The Invest Nest. And of course, check out theinvestnest.com. It's an online community for real estate investors. You can go create your free profile, upload your bio, and start networking with other members on the site. All right. And oh, lastly, if you're in, if you guys enjoy watching these interviews as opposed to listening to the podcast, we're also on YouTube. So you can go to youtube.com and search the investnest and be sure to hit the subs to subscribe to our channel there as well so you don't miss any of any of the podcast interviews that we released to YouTube. All right, and now I am super excited to welcome this week's invest guest, Lisa Hilton with lisahilton.com to the show. Uh, one of our last or most recent podcasts, we talked about real estate syndications and had a ton of interest on the topic. So we're gonna follow that up with another expert. Uh, Lisa does a ton with real estate, including hosting the Level Up REI podcast. It's a weekly podcast, so be sure to check that out. And the many more things that she does with real estate investings, I'm going to include all of the links down in the show notes below, including a free giveaway to our listeners. Lisa, welcome to the Invest Nest. Yes, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. And I apologize. I know we've been uh, trying to court, uh, connect and part of that's been on me and travel, uh, but we're here now. And so I'm thankful for you to join me on the InvestNest. It's, it's absolutely my pleasure. Awesome. Um, now, I want to dive right in because I have the feeling we're going to have a super jam-packed show with information on uh, syndication and so much more because your background and experience, uh, you have a ton of it in this field. So I want to dig right in and just ask you to give us and our audience a quick 
little bio, quick background on yourself. Bring everybody up to speed if you don't mind. Sure, sure, sure. So I'm originally from the Cayman Islands. Um, so, and I've been in the US now a little over 10 years. My background is accounting. So I went to school for accounting and did my CPA. I am an inactive CPA. I did, I spent 10 years at PwC working as an auditor on all different types of funds. So private equity funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, all the funds. <laughs> and who knew that all of that work would pay off later on. Um, so after I left PwC, I spent four and a half years at an investment manager here in the Los Angeles area um, that raises funds. Um, so they are, I think, almost 200 billion in assets under management at this point. Uh, they do private equity, credit, and real estate. So I was a controller on private equity real estate funds for four and a half years. During that time is when, when I started at that company, a friend of mine who was working there, um, she left a month after I started and she said to me, she was like, Lisa, it's going to take you six months to figure out what you're doing and six months to determine whether you like it or not. And she was right because in those second six months, I realized, you know what? I can do this, but this is not where I'm gonna stay for the rest of my life. So I need to figure out what my next chapter is going to be. So that was four and a half years ago. I began the journey of saving and thinking about investing. I started listening tons of podcasts, reading books, going to real estate events. And at first I wanted to buy a duplex here in Los Angeles, but at a million dollar price tag and even more money to fix it up after you buy it, that was just not economical for me. <laughs> um, so then I thought about out of state. Um, I looked into turnkey properties, but in my early 20s, I bought a property when I was in Cayman and it didn't do very well because I bought it because I loved it and I didn't understand how to run the numbers specifically on real estate properties. And it broke even the first year and lost money every single year after that for a total of six years. Uh, during that time, I lived in Cayman for the first year, and then I was an out-of-country landlord for almost five or six years after that. And I couldn't afford property management because I didn't think about property management when I was buying it, because I didn't think I would be leaving. And lo and behold, I left, and now I didn't have money to pay property management because that would be even more money to float. Um, so I held on to it, and after I moved to LA, so almost five or six years in, I got an email in the in my email over a thousand dollars. The AC broke down, and yeah, I said, you know what, this property has got to go. So um, that's when I ended up selling it about a year or so after putting it on the market, and. Um, I had sworn off of real estate until I took the job working for the investment manager. And yeah, so fast forward to the turnkeys, did those, didn't, couldn't quite pull the trigger because of my earlier experience. I was just like, these numbers, I just couldn't get to where the numbers made sense for me. And that's how I got introduced to real estate syndications about a year after that and then made my first investment. And to date, I've made five investments, four multifamilies, one industrial. Um, two of those uh, multifamilies have now gone full cycle, um, both of them in the Atlanta area. So that sort of brings us up to speed to sort of where I'm at now, because as you introduced, 
I am a real estate syndicator with a focus on multifamily, but my overall focus is recession resistant asset classes. So multifamily, self-storage and mobile home parks. Um, but right now my focus is only on multifamily um, for right now. So yeah. So that's, this is such a great story. That's why I was really excited to have you on yeah. um, because you know, your journey covers a lot of different aspects of real estate investing. Mm -hmm. And I want to touch on some of these topics uh, if we can real briefly. Um, number one, the fact that you invested early on, maybe with a little experience or before you had experience and had a, and ended up having a bad experience. And I think that can happen with people in particular, if they, you know, don't, know exactly what you're getting into and then it can leave a bad taste in your mouth mm -hmm. fast forward to you know your your career experience through you know really as, which is from my understanding like a finance um an accounting right. accounting background where you're all you're doing is really crunching the numbers and analyzing mm -hmm. the numbers and dealing with the numbers you combine the fact of that you're prudent with with the finances with your your not so great experience mm -hmm. i would imagine that makes you an incredibly strong underwriter when you're vetting deals so you know i i, I think that's why it sounds like passive investing in real estate syndications works so well for you and i'll let you explain mm -hmm. that to us more but before we get to that i wanted to just touch on that that position you held with that private private equity firm because mm -hmm. that's like big league stuff right there that's like the fun stuff you're the controller that's the person that's distributed distributing the funds dealing with the the promotes the waterfalls all that type of stuff can you just briefly tell us about that experience and what you gained out of that yeah totally um that experience provided me with the operation side of the funds uh, because prior to that i was just pretty much auditing the financial statements that these funds would kick off but when i moved to taking that controller job i was now like producing all of the information that ultimately created the financials to begin with um you know so really a lot of information in terms of learning about like the deals that they look at and that they are, were interested in investing in, which are primarily like trophy assets. You know, you're talking about like Ritz Carlton or, or, um, you know, developing, you know, like cuts and yards and like that kind of stuff. So it's very like high end type um, of investments, but being able to be in that environment and listening and, and learning, um, managing funds. So these funds typically would, um, you know, usually the assets under management for one particular fund could be close to a billion dollars typically. Um, and then they're taking the, that money and buying commercial real estate with it. Uh, so definitely a lot of institutional investors um, is, is the focus. It's not retail investors typically um, is the focus there. But yeah, lots of really good experience. Usually those funds are also close ended. So, you know, what I'll branch off to a little bit here is like, I'm talking about fund a lot and people, someone might be curious on, onto like, what is a fund and like, how does it, how does it relate to syndications? Because I was getting, like, I was getting ready. To, I was just getting ready to ask you that if, if you could maybe clarify what the difference is between a syndication and a fund or. Yes. A, yeah. Yes. So honestly, they're not very different at all. Um, because a fund is pooling people's money. And usually the fund can be either a single asset fund 
or it can be a multi-asset fund. Um, and in the case of the large institutionals, um, they're typically doing multi-asset funds, um, whereas most syndicators are doing a single asset fund. And at best, they're probably maybe another asset or maybe a third asset. And very every once in a while, you might see a situation where there's a syndication and there's like 26 assets, which I did see recently on Facebook. But other than that, um, most of the time, it's just one asset or two or three. That's it. Now, that's single asset versus multi-asset. Connected to that now is there could be a strategy. So the multi-asset typically are blind funds. So what that means is those are funds where the investment strategy is defined in the very beginning. So you know that this fund plans to invest in value add assets or this fund plans to do development projects so it's opportunistic um, so you'll have that also a fund could specialize in a particular asset class it could be multifamilies, or it could be they could say in their um, their private placement memorandum 25 percent is multifamily 25 percent uh, self-storage etc etc and they will then buy assets according to that um, so that's typically the blind funds, and that's a difference between the single asset funds. Typically, you know what asset you're investing in, and you can then look at the underwriting, you can look at the market, all of that stuff. In the blind, you are really trusting the operator because you've now given your money and you trust that they're going to then invest it for the return profile that they're gonna that they've noted. So they usually will say, this fund will do an 8% preferred return, and the IRR is expected to be between whatever percent, 15, 16, 20%, whatever the case is. Um, and then they'll also talk about when they plan to offer distributions. Maybe those distributions will be made quarterly. Typically, it's on a quarterly basis, whereas syndications could be a mixture of quarterly and monthly. Whereas in the institutional space, distributions are always quarterly, not generally monthly, unless they're selling an asset and they're going to kick out cash flow straight away. Um, so that is probably some of the distinct differences between the fund, um, the multi-asset funds, blind funds, and the single asset funds, which are also known as special purpose vehicles. Yes. SPVs. Yeah. So I, I could ask you so many questions about this. I'm going to try to pull back to the syndication aspect of things, but one more uh, on, on the fund. What, what is your typical type of investor that's investing into these funds? I imagine these are like really high net worth individuals, not just even your run of the mill high net worth people that we talk about on our real estate podcasts right. to partner with. Can you tell us about the type of investors that would typically be investing in one of these funds? Uh, yeah, in the institutional space, it's definitely institutional investors. So you're talking like the pension, big pension plans in like, California teachers pension plan or like the firefighter pension plan, like, you know, large institutions who are taking care of people's uh, retirement money. Um, so that's who will then turn around and invest it in real estate. And that's why I think it's so beneficial for everyday people to have access to these kinds of opportunities, because the reality is many of these institutions are able to do so. And Wall Street is investing in real estate. Um, so these are opportunities that everyday people can therefore then tap into. 
Right. And in particular, I guess that's, is that where you're going with regards to syndication where everyday people that may not have access to it directly to a fund do have potential access right. to syndications. And now I want to move into the syndication, you know, mm -hmm. for our audience, I would like to maybe slow it down just a minute. We probably talk, talked about a lot of different things and maybe, um, maybe gotten a little lost along the way. Can you give us just a, a breakdown uh, of what a real estate syndication is? Sure. And I'm, in this interview, I'm going to try to get you for as much knowledge because I know you have a ton of it. I'm going to try and get as much information. So for those out there listening that like the, the hard info, I'm going to I'm going to try and get as much out of Lisa as I can here. So. <laughs> yeah. So real estate syndications are group investments that allow and provide opportunities for people to buy assets that they would not be able to buy on their own. Um, and it's typically broken up into two teams. You have the active team and you have the passive team. Also known as the passive team is also known as the limited partners. They typically will bring money to the deal. They're investing in the deal. Um, and they are leveraging the time, expertise, relationships, and skill of the active partners or also known as the general partner team to gain exposure to a real estate asset. So the GP team um, is typically three key roles in the GP team. You have the um, acquisitions folks. They are specifically out there looking for deals. They're underwriting deals. They're talking to brokers. They're building that relationship. Secondly, you have asset managers. So after the deal is closed, these people are responsible for ensuring that the property achieves the business plan. So they manage the property managers, they're reviewing the financials, they're looking to see, okay, are the numbers trending in the right direction or whether they need to change the boat, make tweaks, etc. And then the third team member is investor relations. So they're responsible for having conversations and building relationships with investors. So that way there's a constant flow of investors who are interested in investing in all upcoming deals. Perfect. Well, very well said. And so what, what does a, like, how does one, how does a syndication come together? Like yeah. what, what, how does it, you know, like, how does it really work? I guess, what's the benefit of the passive investor and what's the benefit of the general partner? Yes. So the benefit for the passive investor is most people that I work with who are investing passively typically fall into a couple camps. They are busy professionals. Um, right now we're recording this. It's July one. Whenever you put this out, you know, it is what it is, but like it's July one for people who like myself, who were, you, you know, controllers, this is hands down busy time. I mean, super busy because it's the end of the quarter. You're closing the books. People are like trying to call capital. They're making distributions. Like a whole ton of money was moving earlier this week <laughs> to get money out to investors and to call money for upcoming deals that they're trying to close at the, at, before the quarter ends. And then now I worked for a public company. So you have earnings reporting. So like people are now closing the books, getting all the reporting ready to then report up into the house so that the house can do its thing. Like I typically would work very, very long hours. So for, for people like myself who are super busy and they make really good money, 
investing in real estate syndications is awesome because I didn't have exposure to invest in real estate otherwise, unless I wanted to go buy a single family home. And I didn't have time to be managing single family homes from across the country when I'm also dealing with a very demanding career on my hands. Plus, for, the, for those of you who also have children and a spouse, and if you have hobbies, like, <laughs> like where do you find time to fit all of that in plus invest in real estate. So you know you want to invest. It's just that you don't have the time to be doing all of that, right? Um, and the same is true for business owners and entrepreneurs who are in the middle of building their businesses. They are nose to the ground to like getting their businesses off the ground, building the systems 100%. But they need to get their money working for them, bringing in money, and they need the tax benefits. So that's why they invest. Now, for the people who are on the GP side of the house, typically they get into real estate syndications because this is an opportunity for them to leverage the skills and exp expertise that they have to acquire bigger deals. Because really and truly, if you can manage a 50 unit, you probably have the skill set to manage a 70 unit or even a 100 unit or even more because it's just more units. And as you get bigger, you have the ability to hire better quality property management, which is so key. Um, and as a result, they're then able to then acquire more deals because they now have acquired 100 unit, 300, 400, 500. The broker sees that and will continue to bring more of those deals to them. So then they can then get really good at what they're doing, put the systems in place to then build out a very large business. Yeah. Okay. So basically it sounds like you've got people who are, have a career, uh, right. that are happy with their career. They make good money, but they want, like you said, they want their money to work for them as well. Um, yeah. the other side of that, like a lot of our listeners that are doing real estate investing on their own and getting into real estate investing, I think it is more so because they might not be as happy with their career and they're looking at becoming a real estate investor to supp supplement that income and potentially be a retirement for them or to get to that point of financial freedom where they can right. decide to switch jobs if they want or do something that they prefer to do, which might be more investing. But exactly. that in and of itself, you know, we think of real estate investing, even if it's buying a duplex or a triplex as passive in income or passive in passive investing. Right. Really, the reality is there's a lot of work that goes along with it. I mean, it's, it's a job to get those investments mm -hmm. in place. Uh, to vet them, underwrite them, acquire them, mm -hmm. management, even if you have it management outsourced, you know, just you still have to manage the asset. So that's, I think, the, the, the key difference when you're thinking about a syndication. If you're somebody that's looking to set up a passive income for yourself to hit a point of financial freedom and maybe get away from your career, a syndication might not be for you. You know, it, it might not be the right move yet. Um, but if down the road, it might, it, it quite possibly could be once you get to a different point of income and, and capital. But uh, for those that have capital to deploy as investment for investment, but don't necessarily have the time, then the syndication works perfectly. Because again, as you said, you're leveraging the experts who do it full time for a living that already know how to do it. 
know how to, you know, they have the acquisition specialist that knows how to find and underwrite the deals. Right. Um, and then you, you know, you've got the, the asset managers who's making sure everything's running smoothly and making adjustments as needed to keep the engine running. And uh, then you've got the, the investor relations that's communicating to the, the passive side of what's mm -hmm. going on and, and, uh, what they're what what's going on with their money really which is Correct. the most important to them so it's a way for them to mutually uh, leverage one another and that's what's so great I think about syndication because it's not you're not talking about getting into an eight unit or a 16 unit you're talking about for you know talk about the general managers it's it's in a way for people a small group of people to come together and potentially have 300 or 400 or 500 units under ownership within a few years you know, and then the flip side of that is the passive investors get higher returns yeah. uh, than they typically would like in the stock market, but without having to go out and do all of the active uh, investing that goes along with it. Exactly. So, so can you real quickly, I guess, give us a breakdown on kind of what the syndication typically looks like as far as like a, I know there's no right or wrong answer, mm -hmm. but like what the splits would look like and how the the general ma um, managers side get their their compensation and their fees sure. is equity or they are they feeing up feeing up their passive side sure. and then what what type of projections the passive side investor could you know can typically uh, expect if they do go that route. Sure. So starting on the passive side, typically or at a high level before starting on the passive side, I would say that I prefer to invest in deals that have preferred return. So preferred return is the percentage of money that is paid to the passive investors first before the general partners receive any money. This percentage can be anywhere between five to 8%. The preferred return um, usually would show up on most class B type assets and definitely on class A. Uh, usually the only time I would feel comfortable not having a preferred return is perhaps on a deal that is going to experience a lot of value add. So a deep value add deal, typically class C, you're talking about repositioning, you're talking about construction, you're talking about you know, changing out the current demographic and putting in new tenants. You know, that will take more time and I could see the reasonableness of not having a preferred return. So in passive investors, typically the way they will get paid is there's a preferred return to the extent that they're investing in those kinds of deals. Um, as I said before, between five to 8%. And then um, once this deal sells, usually is when you then get into the splits. The splits now could be 70-30, it could be 80-20. Typically it's about 70-30, 80-20 is what I see most deals. Now in terms of the waterfall, the waterfall will come into place when what they'll typically do is they'll have an 8% pref, then they'll do 80 to 20. So 80% to the LPs, 20% to the GPs. I should clear, I should be sure to say that because I have seen deals where it's 20% to the LPs and 80% to the GPs. For investors who choose to invest in those deals, as long as they're comfortable with those returns, by all means, feel free to do so. But just know that there are deals out there where it's LP 
GP 20%. Um, and usually what they'll do is like up to an IRR of like maybe 18%. So like once you get up to 18%, it will, all the cash flows will be split 80, 20. And then once the cash flows over 18, like the IRR goes over 18%, that portion of the cash flows will then be distributed, will then be split 50, 50. I hope that's clear. Let me I stop. think so. One, one quick question. <laughs> when you say, once you hit that IRR, say it was 18%, yes. the, the preferred returns don't go away though, right? They still come off the top. Yeah. So the preferred return is paying every year. Okay. So I want to, I want to kind of try and break that down real quickly if I can, in case any of our listeners out there got a little lost, because yeah. I, I know I did. So I'm going to ask <laughs> you for my own benefit as well. So you know, so real quickly, the structure we're talking about, again, you've got the passive side and the general side. The split, you said 80-20 is a typical. That means 80% of the ownership of the deal goes to the passive investors. And then 20% of the ownership of the deal is maintained by the general partners. Mm -hmm. So before any of the money comes in and the bills get paid and then there's mm -hmm. any income or cash left over or profit left over, mm -hmm. there's a preferred return. Is that Quick question, is that guaranteed even if there's no profit in the property? So the preferred return is paid first and it's paid out of profit. So it has, so it basically the money comes in, all of the bills and associated with running and owning that property get paid first. They're at the yes. top of the line. Yes. Then what's ever left over that you would consider profit or cash Correct. on hand or what have you, or um, you know, net operating income. Yes. Out of that pool, the preferred return goes out first. So Correct. whatever the, whatever the guaranteed return is to the investor, five percent or eight percent. And again, to clarify, you did mention that that's typically reserved for Class B and Class A assets which are more stable assets which come with less risk you know class c reposition value add you're looking for a big equity kicker so there may be a higher return on the long run if the if the general partners can deliver on, on the execution of that but you might have to sacrifice some of those preferred returns because they in order to, to deliver upon that execution they need to hold as much capital on hand while they're going through that right. reposition process so yeah. so the so the preferred return will now go out after all the bills are paid and then let's say there's still some money left over mm -hmm. that's when that money that's left over gets divvied up based on the 80 20. is that correct potentially yes However, what I have typically seen is they will pay the pref, um, they will just pay the preferred return and they will keep that excess cash on hand. So just in case of anything going on, they'll keep it on and they'll keep paying the preferred return every year. So if you're holding a property for three years, year one, investors get an 8% preferred return. Year two, the same thing. Year three, the same thing. Year four, they then sell the property. And that's when, when they sell it, people then, the proceeds that are coming off to the property would be split 80-20. And then if they have a waterfall, it's split 80-20 up until the IRR hits like 19%. So then after 19%, they then split the remaining cash flow 50-50. One quick thing, the preferred return is not guaranteed. It just, um, it just illustrates that limited partners are going to be paid first. And then 
the GP are paid as a part of this split. So essentially the better they perform is they can then get the 50, 50 split on the back end. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So that's a good clarification on the preferred return. It's not guaranteed. So in other words, if the money that's coming in is just only paying the bills and there's no cash left over, there's no returns paid out to anyone. Correct. Uh, The the second point that I think is um, critical that you just said there is that after the preferred return goes out, it's not always the case that there are like quarterly or annually distributions of cash to the investors. What you're saying is that the cash is maintained and held on the books, which until the cycle of the project is done. And I want to ask, ask you about yeah. the cycle of the project and the term of the cycle in a minute, because I know that is a, another large component of it. But before we do that, I want to f- continue along this path of what you mentioned once right. that point occurs of IRR hitting 18 or 19 or whatever that mm-hmm. is, then the splits go to 50-50. Mm-hmm. And what that basically means is I'm going to let you explain IRR, IRR in a minute, but generally speaking, what that means is it's a way to incentivize the general partners to deliver. So they're setting the bar high at an 18 or 19% return, which means the passive investors are getting a really great return on their money. Mm -hmm. And that also means that the general partners are delivering well on what they said they were going to do, what they were going to do, they're executing. As a reward for that, if they hit that, Anything that's left over above and beyond, the split changes to 50-50. That's okay. kind of like, I think, what is referred to as like a promote. So, it's typically promote. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So so that goes to 50-50, and then everybody is, you know, at that point, gen- basically enjoying the great returns that, mm-hmm. that have come. So before we go into the cycle of the... Actually, let's start with that. What does a typical cycle of a syndication look like? Is it a three-year, a five-year, a seven-year? How does the capital generally get redeployed? And what are the various ways that can happen? And why are they held for certain periods? And why why is the capital redeployed in different ways? Yeah. So typically, it could be a three to seven-year hold are most syndications. Um, they asset could be sold earlier as we were sharing before this call. I have two assets that I invested in that have sold just after 20 months. Um, you know, it really just depends on the market that the particular asset is in. And if they feel that they can, um, get a good price for it, they'll sell it. Um, it also depends on the current business plan and how that's tracking. So as I shared before, one of the deals that I was in, um, got hit with COVID last year. So in the sense that it was a class C asset, a lot of the tenants were unable to pay their rent on top of that. The operator was unable to execute a lot of their business plan in terms of renovations. So that hampered the ability to increase rents to the level that they wanted to in order to generate the returns they wanted to for investors. So from their perspective, they were like, you know what, our best bet, since we're in Atlanta, someone's offering us 30% more than what we purchased it for, let's go ahead and sell it, give people back their money and they can move on to other investments. So then that brings me to the next part of your question about, okay, what happens to the money in the end? So in the end, you will get, once it's sold, um, technically, if it's sold at a gain, you would then get your money back with your portion of the gain as well. When you get it back, you have a choice of being able to invest in another deal So you could, if the first thing, if the operator is doing a 1031 exchange, 
they will tell you, I'm doing a 1031 exchange. I've identified XYZ asset. Are you interested in coming in 1031 exchanging into this deal? That is the simplest way. And the, I think pretty much one of the only ways investors could 1031 exchange into another syndication. There are probably other ways you could um, implement a 1031 exchange, but I am not 1031 exchange person. I think it's, so. I think it's a tick or a tenancy yeah. in common. Yeah, it's like a, it's a different way of structuring the ownership. But yeah, it gets, yeah. it gets a little complicated. I would recommend speaking to a 1031 yeah. exchange person for that. Um, and then other than that, what I also tell people in terms of dealing with the flow of cash at the sale is usually we tell investors about a month or two before we're selling that we're selling. And I say, go talk to your accountant and say, hey, this is your situation. This asset is selling. Um, you know, I want to understand what my best next steps are. They can look and see how many passive losses you have to then see, okay, what is your anticipated gain coming off of this investment to determine what are some of your next best steps? Um, you know, whether you need to invest in another syndication, you know, whatever your whatever the case is, you might have passive losses to offset already, or maybe you don't and you need to make another investment. Yeah. Okay. Again, and a ton of great stuff right there. So the cycle of the, of the, the syndication really depends on what the game plan is of the operators or the general mm -hmm. partners going in. You know, if it's a reposition play, they need the amount of time to make the improvements, right. uh, turn the tenants and get the rents raised. And then once they do that, if they've executed based on the cap rate of that market and the higher net operating income, they should be able to sell at a higher um, sales price and getting higher rewards or returns to distribute back to their partners. That might take five or seven years. Correct. If it's a more stabilized property, it might be a shorter turn. And that way people are more less risk because you don't have to go through all that process. Um, but you're gaining all those benefits that you're talking about as far as preferred return while right. simultaneously picking up the principal pay down, some potential uh, appreciation, and then all the tax benefits that go along with it. But at whatever point in time of that business plan, it is time to disposition or sell the, the asset, I guess, and or uh, refi. So and in some cases, People will decide to hold the property, refi, to redeploy the capital, and maybe even is it possible to buy out some of the passive investors? Yeah, in, all in, of that is possible. Um, I have not been a part of a buyout before, but I've definitely heard of them. Yeah, okay. It's possible. So let's just, for to keep it kind of simple, clean, let's just assume for our conversation it's a sale. So when the property se sells, that's when that point of dispersing all the funds goes back and it goes back based on that equity split we talked about at the beginning right. until potentially if the promote is in place in the agreement of what x 18 percent or 19 percent irr then that mm -hmm. split changes i'm gonna real quick I, I wanted i made a note so you mentioned that you had you had an experience where the the property actually went to sale after 20 months and you were on the passive side mm -hmm. i want to make this clear to the listeners out there that is a decision solely on the general partners the passive investors don't get a say whether or not they want to hold on to the property or not mm -hmm. sell or want to sell early they don't they don't have that ability that's the general mm -hmm. partners the general partners sole responsibility they have a fiduciary fiduciary responsibility to the passive investors in order to do to do what they think is best for their investment Correct. And if they at any point identify a situation where selling, in their opinion, 
is going to be the best return, not for themselves, not for the general partners, but for the passive investors, then it's their right to do so. And in your case, I'm guessing the reason they did that was that they they anticipated potential risks and uh, uh, you know headwinds in the future coming mm -hmm. in coming in with the pandemic. And they decided to sell since they had a buyer. They were going to make money. They were going to guarantee right. get the money back to their past investors with the return and mitigate that risk or that potential risk right off the bat. Yeah. Well, more specifically, that property. Like I was looking at the financials and each quarter in 2020, um, the NOIs were going negative. So they needed to sell. Yeah. They needed right. to sell. Right. And so that I just wanted to make that point. That's the general partner's job basically to yeah. make sure that the investment is tracking in the right direction. And if not, to yeah. make adjustments, even if that includes selling the property, Correct. even potentially at a loss. Yeah. Uh, so again, this is for all of our listeners, this is all it is investing. None of this is guaranteed. You know, everybody starts with projections. That's what they're, they think you're going to make based on assumptions, right. but that doesn't always, uh, come to fruition. So sometimes things change. So just want to make that point clear real quickly, the 1031 stuff. I had, I had a question for you. And again, you, you made that point very clear. Uh, and rightly so, that a 1031 specialist is needed if you're attempting to do a 1031. And really, honestly, a, a tax professional when you're dealing with any of this stuff as well. Mm -hmm. um, do you know if when when the general partners are selling and planning to 1031, mm -hmm. if a passive investors, do all of the passive investors have to be on board with the 1031? Or does it not mm -hmm. matter if some are or some aren't? Great question. Great, great, great question. So not all passive investors need to 1031. Okay. So what they'll do, from my understanding, from being close to this particular deal is they 1031 the entire investment into the new one. And then the people who said they let you know, as I said, two months in advance, they let us know, hey, we're selling, we've identified another asset. Um, you know, we plan to do a 1031 exchange. Please let us know if you're interested in 1031 exchanging into the new asset. Um, and then what if for all the people who want to, then they'll 1031 in and go into the tick. And then the other people will 1031 in and then be distributed out because they do not want to continue on in the investment. Gotcha. Okay. And real quickly, again, this may not be accurate, but as I understand it, the tick, the tenancy in common, basically instead of the 1031 of the new property being in one entity, it's basically jointly held by two entities. And, mm -hmm. and what you're saying is, is that the one entity is created for all the people that want to remain in and the other entity is created for all the people that want to be paid out. So, uh, uh, no, no, no. So there's two entities. So the people who want to get paid out, they'll just get paid out period. Okay. You know, um, the second entity is they, those are for brand new investors. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So, cause they're, they're acquiring a new asset. So like sense, new yeah. investors are coming in. So they'll come into that entity. That's for them. Okay. Yeah. Makes, makes sense. All right. Yeah, great. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for clarifying that. All right. We right. could do a whole podcast on 1031, <laughs> but we'll save that one for another time. I do want to ask you, ask you if you could please give us, uh, an explanation of yeah. IRR. Sure. So IRR quite simply is the amount of time it takes for your money to get back to you. So it shows the higher the IRR is the quicker it'll take 
they're projecting that your money is going to come back to you very quickly. So like a 20% IRR reflects very quick return on, you know, money coming back very quickly. Whereas as the lower the IRR gets is the longer it's going to take for your money to come back. Um, that's essentially what it means. Um, and why it's important is because you know, you have to sort of consider the amount of time it's going to take for your money to come back in addition. So like if you triple your money, but it takes you 10 years to triple your money, like you, if you could find another investment that could triple your money in five years, then you're obviously going to go with the one you might potentially go with the one that is going to triple in five years because then you get the triple and then you could deploy it out into something else. Whereas if it takes 10 years or 20 years to triple, that's where the IRR can show you that, oh, this is going to take a long time for my money to come back. And you can determine, okay, do I want to really do this deal or not? And it helps you with assessing, comparing deal by deal. So that's a great way that you just explain that and that point that you just made about when you're analyzing or reviewing potential investments because that's where i think it is the most why it's the most important indicator when looking at investments especially when you're taking into consideration the time and the return on your money so a lot of times with investing we're thinking about like a cash on cash return right how much money you're making mm. just based on the amount of money you put in and that's usually like an annualized number, right? So you're figuring right. X percent per year on the money that you've invested. The IRR is taking into consideration a whole, taking something into consideration that's completely left out of that equation of the cash on cash return. And that is like you just said, how long it's going to take for you to, for your capital to be returned. But the, the, the reason that's so important is because when you're analyzing different deals, one deal might have a higher cash on cash return, mm -hmm. but the IRR is taking all of the potential returns into consideration of on your, on your investment and telling you, giving you a measurement basically on that over a period of time. So, you know, when you're looking at multiple investments, like you just said, one might mm -hmm. say that they're going to triple your money, right? It's going right. to give you a 300% return, but if that's over 10 years, that may not be as good as doubling your money in a year. Right. And, and you might not be able to identify that if you're looking at other metrics um, of analysis as yeah. opposed to using the IRR. And that's what the IRR is meant for. Um, and that was a great way of explaining it, because I think it can easily be misunderstood and not quite understood what it's even for. Yeah. Um, so do you know how the calculation to get to IRR works? Mm -hmm. Like what is yeah. what is it? What is all being taken into consideration? Sure. sure. So you want to go into Excel. And you want to use the X equals X IRR formula. Um, before you use the formula, you put in your date. So you have a column for date and you have a column for your amounts. Um, and typically the way I do it is I'll put in, like, say if you put in 50K into this deal, you'll put it in positive, positive 50K and the date on the left. And then every time you get a distribution, you put the distribution amount in and you put a negative. So a negative, say you're getting a hundred, $200 each month. So then each month, and then you put the date in and then you do that all the way down until then when you get the return, like when it's sold, they'll tell you 
um, how much of the money is, well, you'll know what's return of capital because it's what you put in. And then they're also going to break out the gain. So they're going to show what portion of it is gain and what portion of it is operating distributions. This stuff is key to know because your, um, your CPA is going to need to know that when they're doing your taxes because different things um, are taxed differently, right? So, so those different are the classes, things. Different classes of income. Right. You yeah. have your capital gains as opposed to your operating distributions and then your return of capital. Um, so, yeah, so that those things are then broken out and then also put into the IRR calc and then you run the IRR calc. It just equals X IRR. You grab the date column, you grab the, the number column, and then that kicks out what your percentage is. One quick thing to note is um, a lot of people connected to IRR is um, investing for cash flow versus investing for appreciation. So a lot of people, when they're looking at these IRRs, one of the things that the IRR, by just laying out the, the, the numbers this way, you're able to see how much of the cash that you're getting is going to come from operating distributions and how much of it is coming from the sale. If most of the money is coming from the sale, then this deal is heavily on appreciation. It's an appreciation play. Whereas if you notice that when you sum all of the cash that you're supposed to get throughout the period, and if it it's very similar to what you're going to get at the sale, then it's a split. And then lastly, if the, the amount that you're getting over the period is um, greater than what you're anticipated to get at sale, then this is really a cash flow deal. I love this stuff. I mean, I, know, I hope we're not losing too many people out there because <laughs> I know that this might be, good, especially if you're not looking at a, a spreadsheet right now. But I mean, the thing that's so critical about what you just said and with the IRR again is the fact that it's not just taking into consideration only the cash flow. It's not just right. taking into consideration only the appreciation. You know, it's, it's, it's taking or the the principal pay down is taking all of it combined mm -hmm. so it's a way to evaluate all of the returns based on the money that you invested and factor in time right Correct. so it's it's a true return of value on your investment and that's why it's the most critical identifier and what you just said as a identifier of a of a, whether or not a deal is good or not depending on what i guess an investor is looking for as well i'd have sure. to throw that in too but what you just said also about how it's by looking at the return that way uh, of breaking it out between what the sale produced versus what the operations produced. What mm -hmm. I just really quickly want to kind of clarify that what that means is, is that once the sale occurs earlier, we talked about how after the bills were paid and the preferred return was, was sent out to the passive investors, the money that's left over or the profit on the cash flow or the net operating income is being held in a pool. Well, that money is, is, I guess, segmented out or, 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 you know, counted separately from the income that's going to be provided on the sale. The sale income is mm -hmm. based on the sale price, less your closing fees, commissions, and the difference between that and what the principal balance is over pay down. So that's also taking into consideration all those monthly mortgage payments. Is that correct? Um, hold on. I think I lost you. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so your question is, so the operating income is basically just what the cash flow is over the lifetime of the deal, right? Ah, 
so the operating income, yes, this is just, you know, every, every quarter, like if they're kicking off um, distributions quarterly or monthly, like simply the operating distributions is you collect rent, you have all your expenses, including the loan, and then here's what's left. And that is then allocated across all of your investors. And that's the operating distribution. And then some of that you might hold as a reserve. So you might say, you know what, I want to reserve 5% or 10% of this money just in case something happens. So that is the operating distribution um, that then gets kicked out every quarter or every month. Okay. And then the, so the other class of income is the at the sale. Does the sale income include the proceeds from the sale, which also includes, I guess my question is, is it also including the principal pay down? So is okay. it the difference between the, is it the difference between the balance at the time of, of principal at the time of sale and the sales price less cl uh, closing and commissions? Sure. Or is it only, so, is it only based, is it only catching appreciation? Is it only catching what's above what you paid for it? So the total sales proceeds should be, you know, return a capital, plus the game. Okay. So like if they sell the property for, say you buy a property for a hundred K and you sell it for 20, for 200 K your sales proceeds, the, the sale price is 200 K you're getting 200 K. Um, but when you get that 200 K, the first portion of that 200 K you're, you're going to say, okay, a hundred K out of this 200 is return a capital. And gotcha. then the rest of it is realized gain. Got you. And that is including whatever principal pay down has occurred then over the time. of Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's including it's after it's after the return of capital, but Correct. it is including principal pay down. So that sale income is including um, principal pay down as well as any appreciation that's occurred. Right. Okay. Right, right. Great. So this, I could go on and on forever with you. I think we might have to, I think we might have to reserve some more information on syndications for another podcast, but, sure. um, real, real quick, do you have, uh, I know you mentioned the one that you went, um, tw went 20 months before you sold. Do you right. have another deal that you could, that you're working on or that you've done, or that is upcoming that you could maybe talk us, talk us through just some, some quick bullet points on it? Uh, yeah, so the last deal that I was working on was, um, it was called Estates at Crossroads. Um, so this one is a 300 unit. It's closed now. It literally just finished closing. Um, and that Congratulations. Is, yeah, yeah. Um, that one is in Atlanta. Um, it is a class B plus asset in a class A plus neighborhood. Um, so uh, preferred return on that one was like about 66%. And like the um, average cash on cash, I believe it was about six to 8%. And then the IRR was around I want to say 13 to 15%. Um, and these returns were reflective of the asset class, like buying this particular asset, the um, tenants, the bad debt was super duper low. I believe there was only like one or two people who hadn't like paid rent to the previous owners, which is like in this current environment is amazing. Um, so it's just a testament to a very strong tenant base. Uh, so yeah, so the plan there is just a lot of light value add work to execute um, and then to continue to hold the asset. There is the operator that I worked with for this particular asset um, has another asset in that area and was also selling and 1031 exchanging into this deal. Okay, and so are you on the passive side of that one? Uh, yes. 
Okay. And yes. do you mind sharing what the, do you know what the purchase price of the 300 unit was? Yeah. It was like 70 something million dollars. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've and raised so, like 20 million. That's yeah. That's a big network of investor pool right there. <laughs> so uh, real quick, and I'll let you go here in just a minute. Um, do you, you have, have you pulled deals together on your own? Yes, or, or I like, have. Do you have experience with being on the other side, opposite of the passive investor? Correct. I have, I did a half a million dollar fund, uh, in 2019. So that one is coming full cycle. Um, so that's the one that now is 1031 ing that deal is, um, that, that fund was on is now 10 turning 1031 ing into this new deal. Gotcha. Um, however, we're, we've decided to close our fund to allow our investors, you know, choose to invest, reinvest elsewhere, et cetera, for right now. So you, you did a fund as opposed to a syndication? Correct. And was so it blind we, it or was it was a it syndication? Specific? It was oh, a syndication. Okay. Okay. Um, so the reason I call it a fund is because it's a single purpose, I should say single purpose vehicle. Gotcha. Um, so it was an entity created only to invest in that one investment. And again, well, I'll throw the disclaimer out there. None of this is to be meant as legal advice. So consult right. with your, your attorneys yes, and all please. that other good stuff. So, so uh, this is for informational and enjoy enjoyment purposes only. So there, yeah. disclaimer said. All right, well, real quick, uh, Lisa, this has been a lot of fun. Before I let you go, it's time for our segment, advice okay. from our invest guest. Um, it's three questions I'm going to ask you real quick. Mm -hmm. I ask each guest every week. Uh, number one, can what's one thing that you can recommend to people out there listening to this podcast right now that have not started to do any investing that can they can get up and do right now that help to help get them on the path to investing yeah sure hmm. i think the first thing that they can do is one get super duper clear on right now what it is that they feel is best in alignment for them in terms of the way they want to invest if it's flipping whatever like if it's syndication or if it's something else like one getting clear and then once you get clear then think about within yourself what is an action you could take this week to bring me closer to that goal um and being like and the reason i say that is because it's so important to own your goals of what it is that you want to do um and then to go from there Awesome. Very great advice. I think that is a issue with a lot of us is being a little bit uh, scatterbrained and not know exactly what to do. So try to focus on something and attack. Number two, looking back, is there anything that you would do different differently in your investing journey if you were to start over again? Um, you know, uh, I wouldn't because everything that has happened in my journey has enabled me to be where I am today. Uh, you can't connect the top, the dots going forward. You can only connect them going backwards. And when you look back, you realize, wow, like everything helped me to get where I am today. So I'm really appreciative. Great. That's great perspective right there. Well, well said. Okay. And question number three, do you have a book recommendation for our audience that might want to learn more about what it is you've been talking to us about today? Yes. Um, the hands off investor by Brian Burke. It is a bigger pockets book. Um, I highly recommend it. If you're thinking about investing passively, he delivers a lot of really good content in there specifically for people who are interested in investing passively. 
Awesome. I'll make sure we have that in the show notes down below as well. Okay, uh, Lisa, this has been a lot of fun. Before I let you go, um, how can our listeners connect with you if they want to learn more? Where, where, some, where are some resources out there that they can hit you up and, uh, and connect with you? Sure. So best place, one-stop shop for everything is lisahilton.com. And that's L-I-S-A Hilton, like the hotel, only thing with a Y, dot com. Um, so you can find my blogs. I blog, I post a fresh new blog every week, um, fresh new podcasts every week. They're all on my website. Um, video content is there as well uh, from my YouTube channel, which is lisahilton.com, which is Lisa Hilton as well. And you can just grab my ebook, lisahilton.com forward slash ebook. And what's that ebook about? It is a beginner's guide to real estate syndications. So a lot of the stuff we talked about here, plus there's a case study in there for a sample real estate syndication deal. And there it is, right? You heard it right there, you guys. If you are into syndications, if you've liked what Lisa has been talking about here today, go check out her ebook. It's absolutely free. Uh, LisaHilton.com slash ebook. And it's a beginner's guide to real estate syndications. Of course, check out LisaHilton.com for all of her other resources. And you can find her on Instagram at LisaHYL. And I'll include her Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, and YouTube links down yes. below in the show notes. Awesome. Um, oh, and of course, last but not least, definitely check out and subscribe to the Level Up REI podcast. It's a weekly podcast that Lisa puts on, and I'm assuming that can be found on all the platforms. Yes, so definitely. wherever you listen, go check it out. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and leave Lisa a great review and rating. Uh, Lisa, this has been a lot of fun. I gained a lot of information out of this. I know, or I hope our audience did as well. I know that they are going to want to connect with you and learn more. I know I will stay in touch with you. Uh, I want to follow along, follow along and learn as much from you as I can. Awesome. I appreciate you joining us on this week's episode of the Invest Nest, and we would love to have you back again in the future. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Take care. And I also want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lisa as much as I did. I could, I seriously could have talked to Lisa all day. That the syndication stuff, the breakdown, the analytics behind it, the structure—it all fascinates me. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed hearing it. I hope you guys gained some information and education out of it. Lisa uh, has a ton of knowledge in this area. Um, so I really hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you want to learn more, be sure to go check out Lisa again. All, all of her links are going to be down in the show notes as well. Take advantage of her ebook, go check out her podcast. Um, yeah, she's, she's doing a lot of great things. So, all right. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I want to thank you all for tuning in again this week. Uh, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. If you're enjoying the podcast, leaving us a review and rating really helps us out. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Invest Nest. And of course, go create your free profile on theinvestnest.com. As always, I'm your host, Travis Murphy, and I want to thank you all for tuning into this week's episode of The Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us on the Invest Nest Real Estate Investing Show. Be sure to join theinvestnest.com and start learning and earning today.